I V M. Hi, I'm Utsav, a behavior researcher by training and a slow traveler by passion. Postcards from Nowhere is a travel podcast where I condense a decade of travel experiences and explore not just the where but also the why and how to travel. My stories emerge from slow traveling the less explored parts of the world: Bosnia and Herzegovina, Armenia, Uzbekistan, and even China. At the end of each story, I give practical tips and new ideas about how to travel better. This week, we travel to Sri Lanka and uncover how Buddhism shaped the food of the country and how its principles are incorporated in everyday Sri Lankan food practice. 543 BC. Lord Buddha had left the earth and his body was cremated in a sandalwood pyre at Kushinagar in modern Uttar Pradesh. His left canine tooth was retrieved from the funeral pyre by his disciple Khema. He then gave it to King Brahmadatta for veneration. It became a royal possession in Brahmadatta's country and was kept in the city of Dantapuri or modern Puri in Odisha. Over the next few decades, the relic changed hands and finally ended up in Kandy, Sri Lanka. Since ancient times, the relic has played an important role in local politics because it is believed that whoever holds the relic holds the governance of the country. The relic came to be regarded as a symbolic representation of the Buddha. Thus, no matter who held the tooth, the reigning monarchs built the tooth relic temples quite close to the royal residences. Currently, it's housed in the palace of the tooth relic in Kandy. The symbolism of the tooth relic led to the growth of a series of offerings, rituals and ceremonies. One such offering is the large quantities of food offered twice daily at the palace in Kandy. However, the food from the offerings cannot be had by the devotees. In terms of worship rituals, this is where Buddhism significantly departs from Hinduism. In Hindu rituals, food is offered to the gods and is later consumed by the devotees as prasad or leftover of the offering. In contrast, food offered to the Buddha is never consumed by the devotees. It is typically thrown away, often to be eaten by birds and animals, the commonest being crows and dogs. This is because the food offered to the Buddha is the food of the ascetic, devoid of flavor, texture, or social origin. Qualities which would have made it enjoyable, worldly, and life-affirming. This food is unfit for worldly beings like you and me, and it's only meant for those who are spiritual seekers and have renounced the world. Such food would cause rebirth as crows and dogs, and hence only they can consume it. The idea of food being devoid of flavor, texture, and social origin is central to Sri Lankan cuisine, especially that consumed by the Sinhalese, the Buddhist majority. Food is supposed to have two physical and cultural properties: rasa and guna. Rasa refers to the flavor of the food, while guna refers to its nutritional value. But since the Buddhist monk is a bhikkhu, he begs for food and is unconcerned with what food he eats. His begging is universalist. He goes from door to door to both rich and poor homes and accepts whatever is given to him. He then mixes all the food, and this act has significance. By mixing, he completely erases the social origin of the food. One can no longer say from which household came which food. Secondly, by mixing diverse foods, he does not taste any distinct or delicate flavors. And third, all texture is lost. 
because a crunchy food item would become soggy if any liquid food is poured over it. Thus, the Buddhist monk consumes food solely for guna and not for rasa. But when these principles are applied to the food of the common Sinhalese spoke, they are transformed, sometimes even inverted. The principles still matter, just that they are applied and interpreted differently by the common people. The first is the transformation of the food from raw to cooked, which completely changes its flavor. This is similar to South Asian food practices, where slow simmering of food or even overcooking leads to complete transformation. For example, Bengalis often transform their fish twice, first by frying, followed by cooking. This is in contrast to say Chinese cooking. Consider your roadside Indian Chinese food cart. With a seasoned wok and a high flame, raw food items are brought into sudden and intense contact with heat for a brief period and the food is considered cooked. But you can still taste the texture and flavor of the individual components, the cabbage, capsicum and spring onions in your Hakka noodles. The outer layer gets cooked while the inner remains raw, with each element maintaining its distinct taste. In contrast, almost all of South Asian cooking is transformational. Flavors are not merely salty or sweet or sour. They are usually a complex combination of these. The second transformation is mixing. Rice is so central to Sinhala food that when one is ready to eat, one does not say, let us eat. One says, let us eat rice. The Sinhalese table is like the solar system in which all dishes are peripheral to the sun-like bowl of rice. Curries are simply seen as rice pullers. They are seen as flavorings of rice and therefore act as agents to transform rice into a complete delight of a meal. Meat, despite being a key element in Sinhala cuisine, is rarely ever the hero. It too is a flavoring for rice. All the curry dishes are a mixing of opposing tastes. Wet and dry brings us to the dishes such as maldi fish gravy, a very wet gravy of dried fish. On the dry side, the dish known as malum is cooked without water and is cooked enough to make it dehydrated. Spicy curries with chopped green hot peppers are complemented by milder curries made of coconut milk and they are usually eaten in the same meal. The third transformation is the mixing of social origins in a rather unconventional way. One of the things that has baffled me about Buddhists in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia is how do they eat meat considering Buddhism proposes non-violence towards all beings. To the Sinhalese, there is a doctrinal Buddhist idea which supports this. They hold that what is non-Buddhist is killing and not eating because karma is volition, not action. Simply put, karma is the power of using one's will and not necessarily action. So the Sinhala Buddhists do not kill the animal. But how is the meat available? It's available through Muslims and Christians. Muslims control the meat business and Christians control the fishing business. A quick look at the population distribution by religion in Sri Lanka reveals that the highest concentration of Christians in the country is on the east and west coasts. Muslims, on the other hand, are present in most provinces across the country, thereby fulfilling the meat needs of the Sinhalese. The trifecta of flavor, texture and social origins shaped food in Sri Lanka. And if you look carefully enough, in many cultures of South Asia. In fact, it has influenced our dining practices as well. Most South Asian food cultures do not have a concept of having a three or a five course meal because formal dinners in the West with multiple courses focus on the domination of one ingredient or flavor in a particular course because food itself has both cooked 
and draw properties. In contrast, South Asian food is transformed completely and any food item is rarely about one flavor, but rather a medley of flavors which sings in one's mouth. And what we need to understand is precisely this. No one cuisine is better than the other. If we understand the underlying philosophy of food, its place in society and the influence of religion, we can enjoy and appreciate it across the world. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IBM network. You can listen to us on the IBM podcast app or ibmpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at IBM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to reach out to me, I am Utsav Memory on Twitter and YB Travel 42 on Instagram.